Welcome to Tea Time with the Jackson Center. My name is Kristen McMahon, and I have the pleasure of serving as the president of the Robert H. Jackson Center in Jamestown, New York. We envision a world where the universal principles of equality, fairness, and justice prevail. 2021 is an important recognition year for Justice Jackson, for international humanitarian law, and the Jackson Center itself. And during the course of this year, we will be celebrating the 80th anniversary of Justice Jackson's appointment to the Supreme Court, the completion of the 75th anniversary of the Nuremberg trials, and the birth of international humanitarian law, and the 20th anniversary of the Jackson Center itself. All of those milestones and our planning to commemorate or celebrate them had us looking to the past to see how far we, the law, and the world have come but we know we cannot simply rest on our laurels. And so it also sparked conversations regarding where we are headed and how we get there. And that's part of the story of how we got to our theme for 2021, the work left to do. During this year, we are convening conversations about democracy, US and global institutions, human rights and equity. We have structured our bi-monthly teas a little bit differently this year. Each month has a particular focus and in June, we are looking at education justice and equity gaps in education. The first T each month is geared to provide you with an understanding of the work left to do to achieve equity or to make progress in this area. And the second T each month, which this is, is geared to showcase those actively doing the work to close the gaps. And in this case, actually, we have a little bit of both in this T. So we hope each of these programs inspires you to have conversations with your family, friends, and colleagues and to seek out ways to make change in your own communities. So today, I'm excited to be in conversation with Raymond Pierce, the Executive Director of the Southern Education Foundation, which is committed to advancing equitable education policies and practices that elevate learning for low-income students and students of color in the Southern states. They develop and disseminate research-based solutions for policymakers and grow the capacity of education leaders and influencers to create systemic change. They were founded in 1867 and believe education equity is essential to achieve quality and fairness in the public education system. Raymond, thank you so much for joining me for tea today. Thank you, Kristen. Thank you for having me. And thank you for bearing with that long intro. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. So I like to start each of these teas with a foundational question. And so obviously for our month on education, I, I wanna start with when we're talking about equity in education, what do we mean by that? What is your view on that? Well, my view in, in, in the position of the Southern Education Foundation and like so many others uh, in the education and equity space, um, defines equity in education as, as educating a child by considering all the needs of the child. Um, you know, not all children and, and all populations of children uh, have the same foundations for learning. Um, and there are a lot of inequities that are baked into our system so that some students are starting school already behind. Uh, some students um, are in school uh, and do not have the support structures to get them over a next leap uh, for higher, for more learning, for more deeper learning. Uh, you know, some students, um, you know, come from uh, homes uh, that are buffeted about or somewhat disrupted uh, by the challenges of life um, that uh, uh, oftentimes will not allow a parent or a guardian to assist the child in his or her homework, uh, like uh, other populations of students 
uh, might be able to, uh, to, to have. So there are a lot of things that, um, uh, that make where the student starts uh, not, not even, not fair. And so you don't want to hold anybody back who is blessed or fortunate to have these foundations, but you want to make sure those students who um, are, are, do, do have some deprivations or, uh, that do not have certain resources or do not have certain foundations, um, that they can be accommodated uh, in, 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 the, in, the, in the learning setting. It's not a complicated thing. It's not a new idea. Um, it's just uh, scaling that up and, and recognizing that um, you know, if this country is going to remain, you know, strong and and, and, and with a, a viable, educated, and well-trained population, we got to make sure that our major system for doing that, public education, um, accounts for all the nuances of, of, our, of our students uh, who come to us uh, as best as can practically be accomplished. Okay, that makes sense. I've heard it, and in my research for our conversation, um, some people view the lens as an opportunity gap. Some people view the lens as an achievement gap. Um, and obviously those are very different. What you were just describing sounds to me more on the opportunity gap yes. side of things. So I wanted yes. to see which lens you tend to view things through. Yes, yes, I, I look at the opportunity. You can address achievement later. I'm not gonna try to address achievement. Why is my son not doing achieving well if I know my son uh, has uh, certain foundational deficiencies that many of his uh, his or her uh, his, his 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 classmates do not that makes sense and does this conversation change when we move beyond the k through 12 discussion when we move into post-secondary or even postgraduate level to some degree it changes um but in some ways it doesn't um because um even when we get up to you know post-secondary education uh, you still have situations where young people are arriving um, at college uh, their first year um, um, with huge deficiencies in terms of their, their preparation because they're coming from systems that, again, um, have been uh, hampered uh, by inequities, hampered by, um, you know, uh, political disruptions, <laughs> um, you know, hampered by uh, so many things that some of these students come, particularly in some of your large school districts, are, are, are coming into college uh, without the best preparation uh, for collegiate level work. And that's actually something that uh, higher education can address uh, in, in, in collaboration with uh, secondary education. That makes perfect sense. And because we have been living through 2020, I feel like I have to ask this question because there were a lot of news stories about how um, COVID really revealed some of the gaps and um, uh, inequities in our education system. How has COVID changed the conversation? COVID has changed the conversation by precisely what you just said, and that is by um, highlighting, and I wouldn't say unveiling, but highlighting, uh, lifting up, uh, reminding um, uh, people uh, that there are some inequities in <laughs> um, societal constructs uh, that result in differentiations as to how children will learn in a pandemic uh, when schools are shut down and, and education is, is, is diverted into remote learning. Um, I mean, when I served in the federal government's Department of Education back in the 90s, uh, the late mid to late 90s, um, you know, that's the first time I ever heard of the digital divide. 
um, as the internet was becoming more and more in use and, and teachers were actually incorporating technology into the classroom, we quickly learned that uh, not all populations have that. You know, some students live in communities where there is no internet. Uh, some students uh, live in communities where most don't have a computer at home. Um, most um, uh, live in areas, a lot of students live in areas, even if they have an internet and they can get to a computer, uh, they don't have, uh, uh, they can't pay for the service, <laughs> the internet service. So there's just a number of um, and, and, and deficiencies and inadequacies uh, that um, were highlighted during the COVID-19 that the Southern Education Foundation and others um, early on took hold of to, to develop guidelines uh, for, for educators and administrators uh, to accommodate uh, for, for those deficiencies. So yes, the, uh, the, the pandemic, um, uh, it highlighted, for some people revealed that we still had some really major uh, disparities um, in, in, throughout, throughout the country that can disrupt equity and education opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Last year, as part of our 2020 uh, programming, we spoke with Joshua Edmonds, who is in Detroit. Um, and to my knowledge, the only person at the municipal level who is working on a specific title dedicated to working on solving the digital divide challenge. Um, and so for, for a lot of our listeners and watchers, you know, we live in fairly urban areas. We anticipate because most of us are very well connected that that's how it functions for everybody. And I think yes. that both this conversation and our earlier conversation with Joshua really just, as you said, highlighted the fact that that playing field is not at all equitable. Kristen, I was in a conversation yesterday, I forget with whom, um, and um, large percentages of students, particularly students of color, uh, and, 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 and larger percentages in the Southern states, but uh, lots of students throughout the country uh, at home during the pandemic, uh, trying to watch their teacher instructor, um, you know, conduct uh, the lesson on her cell phone. They were using their cell phone, not a laptop, <laughs> definitely not a desktop, kids, the child has a cell phone is trying to, uh, I've seen someone try to do that, an adult try to do that once, uh, follow a, uh, a remote uh, business meeting from cell phone. It's, it's different, you know. Can you imagine trying to learn? <laughs> yes. So yeah, okay. there's some, there's some, there's some problems. Several day to be tuned in that way. Yes, absolutely. Yes, yes. So for some of our listeners, I feel as if this conversation about education equity or equity gaps in education, it's gonna feel new-ish. Probably their thinking is it goes back to Brown and that sort of Brown was the kickoff of this conversation. Hmm. Obviously your organization has been around since shortly after the civil war. So this is a much longer conversation. Yes. Um, and I think many people would, would naturally intuit. And so I'd love to learn a little bit about the history of the Southern Education Foundation, if you wouldn't mind walking us just through some of the, the highlights of that. Well, uh, sure, Kristen. Um, and it helps to know that the Southern, that the Southern Education Foundation uh, emerged from any, a, a large volume of philanthropy in the country, particularly coming out the Northeast, um, that evolved in the early days after the Civil War, some of it even just, just before the Civil War even ended. 
um, in terms of you know funding the abolitionist movement, the movement to abolish slavery uh, in, in, in the nation. Um, but there was a tremendous amount of philanthropy, people of wealth who had you know made big wealth, uh, and the number one issue for them was you know the barbaric nature of enslaving people. One, but then when the war ended. Um, and the Civil War was, I mean, the South was pretty much destroyed. Um, um, and a Reconstruction began. Uh, and so much of a focus, understandably, was on, you know, the infrastructure that had been destroyed during this war. You know, railroads, you know, fields, crops, you know, ports. It was war. It was tore up. That a lot of the most of the focus in my eyes and many people of the, of the federal government uh, was on the infrastructure, repairing the roads, the bridges, the ports, and not enough attention was being placed on bringing into full citizenry, full citizenship, this massive population of people who had just been emancipated after this war. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, Black people, African Americans are now free. And so it was philanthropy that really picked up that charge and started saying, hey, look, you know, you got to get these folks educated now. You know, they've been denied education. We've got to get, you know, get them so that they can, you know, enter the full citizenry of the United States. And so it was actually George Peabody in 1867 who put up the first million dollars. And the focus really was buying books, training teachers, and building schools. It was infrastructure, it was resources. Got to get books down to the South. Um, Got to train people. We need an army of people that can teach this population. And then they need places, you know, and so school. So that was the main thrust, you know, the buying the books, training the teachers. So it was like it was huge workforce development uh, undertaking, training all these teachers. Um, and then third, uh, building schools. Well, several prominent funds came out of that. The Slater, the, the, the Peabody Fund, George Peabody, considered one of the wealthiest men in the nation at the time, put up the first million dollars for this. Um, then John Slater out of Connecticut, um, did the same thing, hired a former president, Rutherford B. Hayes, to run it. This was probably in 1880, somewhere around there. The second one, he pretty much doing the same thing George Peabody did. Uh, then Anna Jeans, considered one of the wealthiest women in the nation at the time. She was Quaker out of Philadelphia. Um, and the, if, there's a long history of the Quakers opposing uh, slavery, um, you know, helped support the Underground Railroad. And Anna Jeans, again, one of the wealthiest women in the nation and a Quaker woman, uh, put up a million dollars to create the Negro Rural South Education Fund somewhere around 1890s, somewhere late mid to 1890s. And her focus was on this army of teachers, Black women teachers, called the Jeans Teachers. And then the Jeans Supervisors, somebody to supervise all these schools that were popping up all over the place. Uh, the, fourth, uh, the fourth major fund was obviously the Julius Rosenwald Fund. I mean, it's, it's very well known, featured in the Smithsonian's um, African-American Museum uh, in Washington, D.C. The Rosenwald, Julius Rosenwald, extremely wealthy man who put Sears and Roebuck on the world map, um, um, worked with Booker T. Washington, who had, who had been enslaved and created Tuskegee University mm -hmm. uh, to develop a policy. And his policy was like foundations today, immense amount of seed money to build school buildings called the Rosenwald Schools. Well, all those funds were consolidated except for the Rosenwald Fund somewhere around 1934 into what is now the Southern Education Foundation. And obviously we're not building schools and buying books and training teachers anymore. Uh, but so much of the work in the early days during reconstruction was sustaining that work through the development of public funds to pay for it. Uh, and so it was African-Americans who were elected to office during reconstruction 
Reconstruction supported by philanthropists in New York and Boston and Philadelphia and places who were drafting legislation and taking it to the state houses of Alabama and Mississippi and the Carolinas and Maryland and uh, passing into law that taxes would be raised not just to pay for roads and bridges, but to pay for public education. And when the troops pulled out of the South, Kristen, um, it was the landowners who wanted to kill the taxation, but it was actually poor whites who rose up and said, hey, look, let's, let's, keep, <laughs> let's keep this. Because um, now our children can get educated, <laughs> but let's just keep it separate. And so that began the fight to try to, and philanthropy, the Peabody Fund, the Slater Fund, the James Fund, the Rosenwald Fund constantly fought against that segregation. Um, and they were successful for many decades um, in holding it down. But over time, it just got overwhelmed. And when that happened, that's when I believe the Southern Education Foundation started getting into work with Thurgood Marshall and, and Jack Greenberg and, these, and folks like that on the issues of policy and research um, on the effects of segregating you know, how we educate our children. So that's how we got into uh, the world of, of research and policy. We've, you know, we've we've have this iconic um, endeavor in, in leadership development that goes again back a hundred and probably fifty years, um, as you know, philanthropy was building the schools and buying the books and training the teachers early on. Uh, they took on the the task of developing leaders, people who can run these schools and assign the teachers. And, and so that's how we got into leadership development. Uh, that was early on also. So and then workforce development was another one, I think, or I think definitely during Reconstruction. Uh, I think the Slater grant had in it uh, industrial training. Today, you would call that workforce development. So the Southern Education Foundation, our, our reach goes from kindergarten, pre, pre-K to higher education. But we also have a strong school to work. Um, a component of our DNA, knowing that everyone's not going to go or needs to go to, you know, four-year college. And so that's, uh, people say, you've done a lot. Well, we've had to because for so long, we were it. I mean, you know, we predate the NAACP and um, the Legal Defense Fund, the Urban League by, you know, 40, 50 years. So we had to be involved in so many of these things. And um, most of the, many of the HBCUs, most of HBCUs today, in existence today, historically Black colleges just came out of that movement after reconstruction, I mean, during reconstruction. Um, so that's uh, that, that's that's our, our, our history, Kristen. I hope I didn't make it too long. <laughs> nope, that was perfect. And actually you gave us some very natural lead-ins so we can talk about some of your focus areas. So that was perfect. Um, I'm going to attempt to provide some statistics, but correct me if I go astray. So um, my understanding is from my research that nine out of 10 students, so 90% of students in the United States are served by public schools. Yes. Am I good so far? Okay. Um, and then, um, uh, and then um, for the Southern states, um, uh, and I think it was 11, I'm trying to remember from your website, I think 11 out of 15 states invest less than $10,000 per student um, in the public education system. Okay. Correct. And how does the poverty level in the Southern states factor into this as well? Because I, I remember there being a statistic and I want to say it was, it was a very significant number. I want to say 85% of the counties whose residents live in persistent poverty are in the South. Um, and so I'm curious as to, to how that impacts this conversation. 
has a huge impact, uh, Kristen. I mean, you just follow the numbers. I mean, it's uh, almost predictable, and it should not be uh, predictable that um, income level determines education. <laughs> um, but it does in the United States. It does. Uh, zip codes, uh, where students live, where people live, uh, their zip code. Um, you can determine uh, the graduation rates, you know, from that community or from that zip code or the college matriculation rates. That's wrong. Um, there are a number of nations, nowhere near as far advanced as we are, uh, that have public support, publicly funded education, and you don't see those types of disparities based on income, you know. Um, and I, it's just unnecessary for the United States to have this, and it's just a, a, a persistent foil for us. Um, uh, that that has to be addressed. And I personally believe that it, it, it can be addressed. But yes, um, uh, socioeconomic status, poverty levels have a, a huge and obscene huge impact on education attainment levels. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things you were just describing feels to me, and this gets into the systemic part of this conversation of potentially a byproduct of how we have set up our levels of governance um, in the United States. So we have obviously local level, we've got state level, we've got federal level, and obviously there are levels in between those as well if you if you loop in counties and, and other regions. Um, and so I'm curious as to one of the key issue areas that SEF focuses on is governance. And that sort of those closest to the taxpayers and to the parents should really be the ones driving this. So why did why is that the right level? Um, that's I'm glad you asked that, Kristen, because that that's one of mine. When I became president of the Southern Education Foundation in, in a few years ago, um, 2018, um, I really pulled that one up to the front lines, the governance, how we are governing our systems of education. Uh, and I've, I've been around for a while um, in, in this, the, this task, this undertaking of how can we create better opportunities and how can we improve public education. But there's an undeniable element uh, in public education, and that is governance, how we are governing um, our public schools. And unfortunately, many, a large number of our governance models, school boards, <laughs> for example, um, um, have had decades of disruption. I say probably 40, 50 years now uh, of disruption um, that have negatively impacted um, leadership. <laughs> you know, school just superintendent, you know, the super has negatively impacted leadership and the ability for, for systems, in this case, school systems, the school systems um, to have consistent and sustained improvement uh, following any particular strategy. It seems like strategy are constantly changing because governance is constantly changing um, and it's just too disruptive. Uh, and I just think there've gotta be better models out there that will allow for local governance, local input, because I don't see changing that. Public education has always been local. You know, you raise the money in your local community to pay for your schools. Uh, states have gotten into it to to bring about some equity and fairness and all that, um, and some supervision. Uh, and the federal government puts a, a small percentage of funds into public education, which is a good thing, which is how the federal courts and Brown v. Board of Education are able to get involved. Um, 
but for the most part, it is a local matter and how communities uh, want to see envision their children, their community, getting their reading, writing, and arithmetic, and so much more, how they see that going on, uh, being carried out is, is, is critical. And so informing the population, informing parent groups, informing community groups uh, for more serious engagement uh, in the governance, and governance it takes on some complicated and multifaceted issues. So how do we put in, in place the types of governance structures um, and leadership models that uh, can allow uh, systems of education to breathe <laughs> um, uh, you know, quality, good air, and become the best systems at, at, at educating our children as possible. And part of this sounds as if we need to go back to the funding conversation as well. So if, as you said, the, the education level that you typically receive and obviously the, the resulting results from that, that was very inelegantly said, but um, uh, comes from sort of the income level of the people in the community. How do we reconcile the needs with income level? And then how do we factor in this, this local governance if that is, is the ideal structure for that? Well, that's uh, where I think um, the states play a, can play a better, a, a good role. Um, an important role because it is states, um, state departments of education that um, have, for, I, I hate to use this term, but I'll use it, equity vehicles <laughs> uh, to compensate for those disparities. So you've got Jones County on this side of the railroad tracks and Smith County on this side of the railroad tracks. Jones County has always had all the money, <laughs> you know, um, the houses are worth far more go across railroad tracks, Smith County, uh, same state within five miles of one another, Smith County. Um, I mean, they are the descendants of the people who worked the land, <laughs> you know, for the Jones County people. And so when property taxes are taken, you know, collected, uh, Jones County has a you know, million dollars and Smith County has a hundred thousand <laughs> to educate their student, their children with. And so the states looked at it and say, okay, to bring some level, I, I, um, there's a, there's a term of nuance for this. Uh, states will appropriate certain funds to Smith County to try to compensate for that. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a good start, but those, um, but unfortunately um, um, are not um, sufficient to deal with those deficiencies and those inequities. And that's actually those, those, form, those funding models, I believe, in fact, we are, um, um, need to be more thoroughly examined. Uh, and our tax laws revisited uh, to determine how best to raise the funds to educate our young people. I mean, this is, this is critical work here. I mean, I, I got to have an educated population and um, I, we can't waste anyone. So let's figure out ways as to how uh, our taxing authorities and our revenue authorities uh, can compensate or accommodate for those disparities. That's just one. Federal government gets involved in that also to help, um, uh, you know, equal that, you uh, 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 that playing field, not by taking resources from you know, over here, but raising everyone up to, to, to an appropriate and effective level. And going back to the equity piece, it might be that Smith County actually needs more money because of all those uh, deficiencies. And that's when you really talk about equitable education. And that was actually going to be my follow-up question because I was wondering if at this point, given how long these systems have been in place, 
is, and I'm going to attempt to use these words correctly. So is it an equal distribution, which might mean redistributing some money from a wealthier county to a less uh, well-off county sufficient at this point, or is what is more necessary is some larger influx of resources and support for those counties or those school districts that have historically been underserved? Well, let me move to the latter part of what you said, but you know, preface it by saying this, uh, well, and that is, yes, identifying what those deficiencies are. I didn't, because you know, it's not just money, it's okay, what are the deficiencies? The students in Smith County over here with the lower tax bracket, um, um, they may need after school services, you know, after, after school services that the school kids over at Jones County don't need. Mm -hmm. um, the school, the kids over in Smith County might need at least two or three times a week a health service prof professional to come in. And take a look at these kids, you know, from time to time. You know, mom and daddy over in Smith County sometimes just don't have, you know, the the resources and, and the blessings, you know, to be able to keep their children, you know, uh, vaccinated and up to date, and um, um, so that they can take they can learn, you know, so that their health issues are not an issue. Um, we know free or reduced lunch and breakfast programs, and we can just know what the impact that has had on education. Um, I think some of those need to be revisited to make sure that they're not, um, you know, that they are in concert with the home, with the family. But at the same time, your Jones County kids may be able to get up and go straight to school with a full stomach and the kids in Smith County, <laughs> you know, come to school with their stomachs growling and therefore unable to pay full attention to what the instructor is trying to get. So those are some, what we sometimes call wraparound services um, and community schooling uh, that can be identified and brought to bear uh, for Smith County. That makes sense. And one of the key issue areas uh, that I, I think SEF um, focuses on is sort of that, I guess I would call it a holistic approach um, to, to students' education. It's, you know, it's not just the school, what's happening in the school itself in terms of education. It's, you know, what is, what is the access? What is the support that's around that? Um, are the schools safe? Um, and, and then the curriculum as well. Um, Yes, um, I, I agree. Um, so what, ask that question again, Kristen. So it's, you know, I think it's, I, I think for a lot of our audience, that sort of holistic approach is perhaps something also new that they're sort of coming to understand that it's yes. more than just what, how many teachers are in the school and how many students does each teacher have? Precisely, um, the, the holistic approach, looking at the whole child, um, um, and all the variables that go into this, in, in fact, in my day, <laughs> that, you know, that wasn't done. Um, I'm not saying that it shouldn't have been, but um, there's just too much research out here right now that shows that um, uh, it's not just the brick and mortars and making sure that child has the ability to get to a library. There are so many other variables that can negatively or positively impact a child's ability to learn and therefore compete like you know like, like everyone else um and so we have to look at the holistic approach when we take a look at uh how to address some of these inequities i also am curious um how school vouchers plays into this conversation and so it appears again from a layperson's standpoint that one of the 
and I'll air quote solutions um, to uh, deteriorating public education was to enable students from under-resourced or less well-served areas the option to go to a private school if there was one in the area and that would be publicly funded through vouchers. So I would love to get your opinion on how vouchers play into this and 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 how you know is is that the right focus um and or should it be no we just need to make the public education system better well um I, one um I, I never would want to confuse vouchers uh with other so-called school reform models particularly charter schools because charter schools are public schools but let's stick with vouchers just specifically what you're talking about uh, and I'll just say emphatically that I and the Southern Education Foundation, we are unequivocally opposed to vouchers, the taking of public funds to pay for private education at the massive levels we see now. Um, sure, there's a history of, um, and courts have um, supported uh, a use of private funds uh, to assist students in transport, being transported uh, to the Catholic school <laughs> where they're going. Um, things like that are reasonable. But when you're talking about um, vouchers to attend a private school, uh, here's why that's problematic, uh, Kristen. One, um, uh, what research we've seen out there that has been going on for a couple of decades now doesn't show uh, any significant improvement um, in the education attainment levels of, of students with these vouchers. And actually, we see some reversals there. Um, we also see many parents um, not being able to sustain their children's attendance at these schools because the vouchers just won't, you know, cover the entire tuition. A $2,000 or $3,000 voucher uh, for $10,000, $15,000 private school, or, you know, you can find yourself getting in debt uh, like that, and a lot of parents have. Um, but our, our fundamental primary uh, concern with that is that um, vouchers, uh, the siphoning off of public funds uh, has always come hand in hand and been associated with and found itself around um, those who sought to maintain segregation. It is always uh, the majority of the private schools in the South were created right after Brown v. Board of Education was decided or right around that time. Uh, white community simply said, look, we are not going to send our children to school um you know with black children so therefore we'll create all these we'll create schools and so a lot of these schools many of them religious schools which is very interesting because i have a degree in divinity and i actually teach political theology i will be teaching political theology this this fall and i just think that's very interesting that church um in many respects the christian church was heavily involved uh in the creation of schools private schools after brown versus board of education to thwart desegregation I, that's another one I've got to <laughs> get into uh, one day. Interesting thing to wrap your mind around, yes. <laughs> yeah, to wrap my right mind around that, the church's involvement in that. Um, and, and so a lot of those schools that were created, I mean, these are the hundreds around the country were created right around in the 50s and early 60s, um, have found themselves in financial straits hmm. in, in recent years and in, in, in recent decades. And the enrollment is down, nobody can afford that. So where are you gonna get the money? <laughs> You know the public schools and so let's push vouchers so there's there there are agendas here also um and so then to put a a, a black face on this and say okay well this is a way to help the young impoverished african-american child and you know in the inner city of detroit or cleveland or somewhere um by having a voucher to go out there 
I think that's somewhat of a, um, that's not telling the full story. Um, look, I, I would never try to tell anyone, you know, look, you know, get in someone's way of an option to help their child um, if they know they can find a better school. Um, but I, I, I would have to get into the, and it's a tough conversation, and it's, it's just a tough conversation, but it has always been this way. If you want a private education, pay for it. If you want a public education, uh, pay your taxes like everyone else and send your child to the public school. And you could have some choices on that. This magnet school over here, if your child could get into this specialty school um, in the public system, but let's not drain the public funds to support, to prop up private education in ways that will only um, exacerbate segregation, racial identifiability, um, and actually don't seem to have any proven results. And uh, now, now, at the same time, no one is saying, and I'm not saying, that our public schools are, 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 are perfect. They need a lot of improvement, but I don't think the way to improve our public schools is by taking those funds from them and sending them to private schools under some false assumption that this house is gonna create competition and make the public schools do better. I, that's not gonna happen. Gotcha, okay. Well, and if um, for some of those Southern states, we talked about that figure that they're investing less than $10,000 per student, and I want to say the national average is a little over 12,000, if I remember Yes, correctly. precisely. Is there, is 12,000 even sufficient? I mean, is there, is there an ideal, has your research, I don't know if your research has looked into this, but is there research that shows sort of what is the ideal amount that should be invested in a student? Chris, and I have seen that, I've seen that. We haven't done that research, but I've seen that somewhere. I'm glad you asked that. I'm going to look for that. Uh, that's, that's. And I've seen that, but I don't. I don't recall those numbers. Um, but I do recall uh, strong suggestions that it be increased. Hmm. Okay. All right. That's helpful to know. Okay. Um, I also want to talk a, a little bit about some of the specific programs that SCF uh, oversees or runs um, with regard to. Um, uh, really, just making everything better. So the first is the equity-centered school governance program. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that advocacy network and what's being done through that through that program. That program um, goes back again, you know, well over 100 years, <laughs> um, and uh, has its roots in um, early efforts between philanthropy uh, in the North, working with um, African American communities in the South early, I mean, after the Civil War. Um, and this is all rural. In fact, the Jeans Fund that I mentioned that came out of Philadelphia, Anna Jeans, the, the Quaker family, uh, it originally was called the Negro Rural South Education Fund. Um, and um, the a major way, uh, the major strategy to work with communities, Black communities in the South, uh, was to form them together <laughs> and, and, uh, and visit with them um, and bring and, and provide information on how schools are working elsewhere, particularly in the North. These are how the schools are working in the North. These are the funds you have uh, here. Here are some of the private funds. We might be able to get some public funds. It was working with the communities. Um, oftentimes, obviously no surprise, the black church was involved um, and with that also. The women's groups dominated that. The black women groups, you know, going to get anything done. Uh, they were, you know, dominating, you know, that world, the genes teachers. So it was really building communities of, of interest and practice together um, uh, who had a stake in this. And, um, and so um, 
the model that we're talking about now is 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 re replicating that. We we've done it here recently. I think we had a uh, when I arrived, we had a grant from the Gates Foundation uh, to build something called the Southern Policy and Practice Network, which feeds upon this historic uh, role that the Southern Education Foundation has played in in in, in educating communities on about uh, on education policy and education resources, and then strengthening their ability to advocate. Uh, on behalf of their selves and their communities and connecting them with real policymakers, most of the time state elected officials. Um, so it's, that's good work. I, we, we really like that work, Chris, and that's actually something that uh, we're looking to expand. I think you got to get the people on the ground connected and involved in the work um, to improve their communities. Mm -hmm. Have you, is that something you've noticed? Because the Southern Policy and Practice Network, when I was doing my research, was also something that intrigued me is that network and or are you finding it harder to find those people in the local communities to get involved? I'm just wondering sort of like, is there a level of, you know, citizen support that used to exist that no longer exists? And that's something also from a foundational perspective needs to be worked on. It does need to be worked on. Um, but I'll tell you, Kristen, um, I'm actually impressed with the the fervor, the community fervor for involvement. What hurts is that um, it's just a lack of information. Hmm. And, and that's a role we step into play in, during our research, getting, it's just a lack of information. These are good people, hardworking people. I, I went to a session um, in Little Rock, Arkansas. Um, the Winthrop Rockefeller Foundation was sponsoring this one. I was asked to come speak because this is something we do. And it was in an evening around six or seven o'clock. Um, and uh, it was a, the, the, the meeting was about uh, a particular school um, and some accountability measures they were going through and what parents should know about that, what resources were available, everything was going on. The place, it was in the basement of uh, a 4-H club, one of the 4-H club, a 4-H club in Little Rock, Arkansas. It was in a basement. The place was packed. Uh, probably 70% mothers, <laughs> many of whom, many of whom had babies in baby carriages, two or three kids running around them, paying attention to what the person on the stage is trying to say. And we all, they all we provided a meal, true, they were eating. Um, and the, just the interest, the questions they were asking, and I just said to myself, if anybody says that, you know, communities of color or, you know, disadvantaged communities or these communities like this are not interested in the education of their children, you know, they should see this. They, they, are, they want the best for their children. They just need help in figuring out how, you know, how to navigate the bureaucracies of the school systems that their children attend. And so I think the fervor is there. Uh, what I think is lacking, Kristen, and this is the gap that we fill, try, to, try to fill, is getting them that data and that information so they can expand and, and advance their thinking and their questions and their thus their involvement and impact on the education of their community. That makes perfect sense to me. Um, and I think the last of the specific programs I really wanted to talk about, and you addressed this a little bit when we were talking at the beginning of our time together, is that leadership development piece. And so yes. there are a couple of programs that SEF uh, oversees that are really working on developing the next generation of leaders. And so I would love for you to talk a little bit about those. 
Yes, again, that's historical also. Nothing that started under my time. Um, uh, and that goes back, again, late 1800s, probably even before that, probably around the 1880s. Um, and as I mentioned, there was a massive philanthropic effort here in the, in the United States uh, to educate um, in the population in the South. In fact, one of them, the Slater Fund, was uh, for the newly emancipated population and poor whites. I, that's actually one of our charters. His deed to us was is and poor whites. So it was, there was no system of education for anybody of any substance in the South, in the South of the Mason-Dixon line. All that was up North with the, uh, with the Horace Mann movement, if you remember that history, uh, to create universal education or what is now called uh, uh, public education. But, um, um, you know, the work, um, um, you know, philanthropy's involvement um, early on in building these schools and buying these books, they quickly learned that, look, we need people to manage this, you know, to, you know, order the books and assign the teachers and so leaders. And so we got into that early on. Uh, so it continues today uh, in two principal forms um, that we're actually looking to expand. One is the oldest, which today is called CELI, Southern Education Leadership Initiative. Uh, and it's had that name um, because of some significant funding that came in uh, for the last 25 years, 24, 25 years. Uh, so CELI, Southern Education Leadership Initiative, which is something we've been doing for, for a long time, but now it is bringing young men and women who are in college or maybe the first year of graduate school um, into a cohort of fellows program. It's a fellowship. And um, they receive training, um, intense training from Southern Education Foundation, exposure to leaders in education from leaders of uh, presidents of universities, uh, chairmen of school boards, um, uh, head of the Department of Education for states or uh, foundation executives to come and speak to these students and work with them about the, the issues in education and the various entities that seek to impact that positively. And then we also place them in internships um, around the region, uh, from Mississippi to Maryland, all over in, in these uh, president's offices or at the school board or at the foundation or at the museum uh, or any, any, or any, a lot of nonprofits that work for in communities to empower parents. So we have a, a long, deep network in those organizations that we call sites, um, internship sites. We have a long uh, history of that. And so um, that's what that's the CELI program. The Relin program, Racial Equity Leadership Network, is also connected to our past. I mentioned the Gene Supervisors um, that came out of the Genes Fund, which was consolidated into the Southern Education Foundation in 1934, I think. Um, but the Gene Supervisor, today we call it the Relin, Racial Equity Leadership Network. And the Racial Equity Leadership Network is, again, a cohort of probably 18 school district superintendents from around the country, primarily the South, um, who we bring together for intense training and identifying uh, inequities and what levers you can pull um, as touch points uh, to dissipate or address these inequities before they become baked in and really begin to negatively impact children. That's a very popular program, uh, Kristen. I really like that one because school district superintendents, they're on a treadmill from the day they arrive at the office to the time they go home. And they don't really have time to get amongst some of their fellow school district superintendents and talk about some of the issues that are going on that in the, in the education of their children they just can't get to because they got to take care of the budget, you know, the, the faculty, the teachers union, you know, the politics. And so getting them away, which we do um, amongst their peers 
facilitated by uh, you know, researchers and scholars um, who can really identify these nuances and have these superintendents who are running these systems talk about it. It's, a, it's, it's exceptionally valuable, exceptionally valuable. So those are the two we have right now. We're looking to actually expand into some, some other areas of, of leadership development, but more in the in, um, uh, public service. Okay, no, that makes sense. All right, um, before we get to our lightning round questions, there are a couple questions I like to ask each of our guests. And one of them is, what do you wish people were paying more attention to in this area? I wish people were paying more attention um, to the children um, and to the big picture in terms of this country um, and how important quality education has been to the, to the development of community, development of people, and the development of this country. It's been, it's been it's indispensable with public education or in the past called universal education or mass education, basically tax-funded education. It's, it's, in, it's, it's incalculable what it has done for this country. Um, but in recent decades, it has been just inundated by so many political disruptions, many of them well-intended, many of them well-intended. Uh, I would wish for people to, to get back on the, the main issue of getting our children educated to, to the best possibility of really having a fulfilling life. And so sometimes when we get caught up in vouchers and tax credits and charter schools and teacher strikes and things of that nature, we forget about that. But I just think if we focused on, you know, on the children and, and strengthening their abilities to become educated, that we can then have some thoughtful conversations with, with some real tough questions. All right, that makes sense. And then what do you see as the biggest priorities to help close some of these education equity gaps or to advance education justice? One, uh, research and thorough and, 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 and uh, sincere recognition of inequity that it exists. <laughs> you know, um, I mean, you can't solve a problem if you don't admit you have one. Um, and so just if we could just quit dancing around these issues, particularly a lot of issues of race, um, it, it, just, it, just, it just be real and say, okay, yeah, there are some inequity and it isn't fair. Then how can we, how can we as, a, as, as, as a community, as a people, as a country, um, particularly in education, how can we address that to give children a fair and equitable shot and getting a quality education so they can be all they can be and be productive citizens, which is what we all want. Uh, so just, you know, just a recognition of those inequities. That's a major piece. And then at the same time, understanding that um, we cannot continue to dance around and away from uh, some of these archaic and out of date funding formulas on, on how we're funding our education. We've got to come to grips with that. It's got to be a recognition. I don't see enough. Um, I haven't seen enough research on that. Um, making its way seriously into policy considerations uh, in, any, in any state in the country. I haven't seen it. Uh, so, and that's one I just think needs to be pushed along. Is there, with regard to the, the funding models, is there a particular model that you are hoping sort of comes to the fore in that? Or is this really, the research on this is new enough or there are many models that would work. It's just, we know the current one isn't exactly it. Um, uh, I, I'm beginning to see some models emerge um, that, uh, from of which I have a preference, <laughs> Kristen. <laughs> um, 
and I've been in this a long time, in and out, but I've been in it a long time. And um, I mean, there's, there's the pool um, concept, uh, which is in place in a lot of places, you know, just have a pool of funds and find out what each school needs <laughs> and um, let's, you know, finance them um, accordingly. Well, there are a lot, that's easier said than done. <laughs> there are a lot of other things that need to be in place for that. Um, but that's one model that I'm, that's, that's becoming to me, uh, becoming more and more attractive. Uh, and I'll say that within the context of community models. Um, I'm becoming increasingly interested and supportive of, and Southern Education Foundation, of community models of education. We have put out many reports on uh, community schools. Um, they've gotten a lot of publicity in, in recent years. I think the great basketball player, LeBron James, helped put one together in his hometown of Akron. That's a public school, that, the I Promise School uh, mm -hmm. that he initiated up there in Akron, Ohio. Uh, it's not a voucher, that's not a charter school, that is a public school, but it is a community school. Identify the needs of the students and get the services in it. Um, um, NEA is looking at that also, NEA Foundation is looking more seriously at that. Um, so that's, um, so what I said earlier, within the context of community schools is, is uh, a funding model that um, is becoming increasingly attractive. Okay, perfect. All right, Raymond, now it's my, like the one of my favorite parts of each of these conversations, which I've dubbed the lightning round. What progress do you hope to see in the next year? with regard to equity gaps or education justice? Uh, I, I like to see some finality um, on the digital divide. It's just get, just find out what's needed and appropriate the funds and just get it done. Okay. Because so much learning is gonna be online now. We, just, we cannot have this problem with the digital divide. I, I, I wanna see that done this next year. This okay. That's an ambitious goal. I like that one. Okay, what gives you hope that progress will be made? I, I think a lot of Americans were, were, were shook <laughs> by this pandemic uh, and having their children at home um, during this time and, and, and trying to figure out how to get this done. Um, and they, they know from the wealthiest to, to, to the least that you know the, the infrastructure is just not there. Uh, so I have a lot of hope that the, that the people at home, the parents and particularly working families um, are, are gonna be very supportive of any type of policies because it's gonna cost money uh, to address the digital divide. I got a lot of hope in that. <laughs> All right. All right. Who else is doing good work uh, to make progress in this area? Oh, well, I, you know, I hate giving out shout outs because you always miss somebody, right? <laughs> no one will hold you strictly accountable to exactly what you can always email me later too if you want to add. <laughs> well, I definitely like the work um, that the Education Law Center, David Sierra and his group, and the Southern Poverty Law Center, Margaret Wong's group are doing, particularly with the, their, their venture in public funds for public schools. Um, and we've been uh, supportive of that. We've been active with that. We've filed several amicus briefs uh, in, in, in concert with, with them. I also say the NAACP Legal Defense Fund and Education Fund, Sherilyn Eiffel. Uh, she's got her hands full with voting rights and other issues in the home and housing. Um, but I'm glad to see that the, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund is still staying involved with the um, uh, on the litigation side of, 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 of public education. It's unfortunate you got to get into litigation sometime, but I'm glad to see they're, do, they're good, doing good work there. Um, NEA, my friend Sarah Sneed, uh, and things she's advancing uh, at the National Education Association Foundation um, uh, on, particularly in community schools. I'm really, that's really, you know, uh, powerful work she's, she's, she's talking about doing there. Of course, Linda Darling-Hammond, 
uh, at the Learning Policy Institute, uh, just her thought leadership alone uh, and the research uh, that LPI uh, has been pushing on improving public education. So you got a lot of good groups out there. Fortunately, we work together. Uh, I, I can't forget you know, some of these foundations that are out here that are also supporting us in this. Uh, we get a lot of conversations with a number of foundations who wanna support us in this role. Great. David was actually our guest uh, earlier in June for uh, the first discussion we had. Oh, wow. Yeah, he's a lawyer. <laughs> yep. We, uh, you know, we, we have an affinity there. So, yes, we always like to have that, that foundational conversation. All right. And the final lightning round question is for our audience, who should they be reading or listening to or using as a thinker? Like, are there podcasts or books or articles that you would recommend for us? You know, I, I know he does a lot of them. Rucker Johnson, I would definitely suggest Rucker Johnson out of Berkeley, UC Berkeley. Um, definitely give uh, Rucker a shout out uh, in, that, in that arena. Um, um, uh, uh, Matt, Matt Shaw uh, at uh, Vanderbilt. Um, the gentleman at Brookings, uh, uh, Andre Perry. Uh, definitely at Brookings. I mean, he's putting out some good writing on this. Um, Iris, um, she's at, at George, George GW, GW School of Education. Iris Rothberg, definitely Iris. <laughs> you know, I would read Iris. Um, um, and again, a lot of the work that's coming out of the Learning Policy Institute also. Uh, but I would also suggest people read some of the work coming out of the Southern Education Foundation. <laughs> your reports issues. are very interesting. I have spent a lot of time on your website over the last few weeks, so. <laughs> Well, thank you, Kristen. <laughs> Been trying to work on that that website constantly and make it more friendly. I understand how that goes. I have a consistent struggle with our website as well. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I'd like to thank our audience for joining us for tea today. Please join us in two weeks for our next tea. Um, in July, we'll be looking at the courts and the judicial system since July 11th is the official 80th anniversary of Justice Jackson's appointment to the US Supreme Court. So July will be dedicated to the courts um, and look forward to seeing you all then. And Raymond, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your thoughts with us. Thank you, Kristen, thank you so much. And um, uh, I, I did a little more reading on Robert H. Jackson, of course, being a lawyer and having worked in civil rights and therefore constitutional law, uh, it's inevitable that you're gonna come across uh, Justice Jackson's uh, writings. And uh, he had a lot of quotes out there too. So. I just want to say I'm very honored to be on this program. I'm glad to see that the Robert H. Jackson Center is going so strong uh, under your leadership, Kristen. Thank you very much. I am going to put you a little bit on the spot then. Was there something in particular that he wrote or that he said that stood out to you or that you particularly- Well, a couple of things. <laughs> one thing he said about, um, he said, one of the, the, the price of freedom of religion the, and, and the freedom of speech and the freedom of the press uh, is that you have to put up with a great deal of rubbish. <laughs> and I get that. I, I totally get that. You know, um, it's a price of free, it's a price of free, a free press and, and, and freedom. You're going to hear a lot of rubbish out there, that, but you can't get mad at it all the time. It's just one of the prices. Another one he said, and it's just because of um, uh, what, the, and I'm an attorney, I was dean of a law school, and I have a lot of respect for our judiciary and thus the rule of law. And, um, and I don't want to get too political on your show, Kristen, but I just think our country has seen some, in my opinion, some concerning actions in, in, in recent years uh, that are an affront, if not a threat to the rule of law. Um, and um, 
Justice Jackson, I mean, he I one of his quote, I actually have it here somewhere. I'm going to point it out. I said right here. Um, the very purpose of the Bill of Rights was to withdraw certain subjects from the vicissitudes of political controversy to place them beyond the reach of majorities and officials and establish them as legal principles to be applied by the courts, the rule of law. But just certain things, <laughs> you know, that you just, you got to keep them away. And again, I think we've seen evidence of that. Um, when the courts speak, that should be it. And he, Justice Jackson said another one also. He said, you know, um, the United States is not infallible because we have a court of final rule. You know, um, it, um, no, we're not infallible because we're final. The way around. Yes, yeah, yeah, we're not. We're not infallible. Yes, we're we're not final because we're infallible. We're infallible because oh, because we're final. Oh my goodness! <laughs> I mean, one second, the man says it right there. Okay, the rule of law, and if you want to be infallible, if you if you just the process says that's the that's the rule of law, it's final. Abide by it. Come back and play another day. <laughs> When you begin to, you know, discredit the rule of law, the finality of jurisprudence, of juris, of, of judiciary, of the judiciary in our checks and balances system, that's a scary thing. Um, and so it's almost as if he was speaking to the future when he wrote that. And so I, 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 I those were the ones that came out to me. Perfect. Thank you. Actually, we tell people all the time that he was speaking to us today, even from 50, 60, 70 years ago. So uh, his his words are long lasting. Yes, 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 yes. And as, as, as again, I'm, I, I teach political theology. I'll be teaching um, public policy, social justice, and political theology at Duke Divinity. And be, when I was dean of the law school, I taught First Amendment, law and religion, yep. you know, so-called separation church and state. And um, uh, Justice Jackson had a quote there also that I came across many years ago. And, and he, it's almost like he got it from Thomas Jefferson. Mm -hmm. uh, when Thomas Jefferson was the first amendment to the United States Constitution was the religious clauses. And that's because the state of Virginia was trying to raise taxes to pay for churches. <laughs> and Thomas Jefferson said, no, <laughs> you know, you know, if you, I don't believe our God needs our tax money. <laughs> and Justice Jackson said something very similar. I got that one too. He said, um, it is possible to hold a faith with enough confidence to believe that what should be rendered to God does not need to be decided and collected by Caesar. Remember? <laughs> yes, I mean, that, that's a great one because, you know, scripture says, what, render unto Caesar's that which is Caesar's, yes. render unto God that which is God. And Justice Jackson said, yeah, you know, if I got to render it unto God, I don't need Caesar to collect it. <laughs> exactly. Yep. All right, Raymond, thank you so very much. I really appreciate it. This was a great conversation. Thank you, Kristen. Thank you so much for taking time. Thanks again for the, the teacup. Anytime. Use it in good health. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Take care. Call me anytime. Have a rest of your day. Thank you, Raymond. I appreciate it. Okay. Bye. You have been listening to Liberty Under Law, the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center, presented in collaboration with Chautauqua Institution. Our program's associate producer is Nicole Gustafson. Bryson Barnes is our producer and composer. I'm Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center and your host. Content for this program was drawn from Tea Time with the Jackson Center, a Facebook live event produced by the Jackson Center. The mission of the Robert H. Jackson Center is to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law 
as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson, U.S. Supreme Court Justice and Chief U.S. Prosecutor at Nuremberg. We envision a world where the universal principles of equality, fairness, and justice prevail. As a nonprofit organization, the Jackson Center's mission is made possible in great part through philanthropic gifts. To learn more about the Jackson Center, our programming, and how you can support our mission, please visit www.roberthjackson.org. You can connect with us and ask questions of future or previous guests through our website. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, remember to subscribe. Thank you.